Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, it's been a rough year for some first responders in Northern Colorado. You read their body language or hear their eyes, and you know something's wrong, and man, you just want to put your hand on their shoulder or hug them, and you just can't do it. Just ahead, we'll travel up to Estes Park to hear how firefighters there are coping with some of the mental health challenges that come with being a first responder. That and much more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. There are a lot of people across Colorado wondering when their time will finally come to get the COVID-19 vaccine. Almost half a million people across the state have already received one. But officials say some people who work in nursing homes and assisted living facilities are skipping the vaccine. KUNC's investigative reporter, Michael DeJuana, is digging into all of this, and he joins us now. Michael, welcome. Hello, Erin. Major health organizations and agencies across Colorado say vaccines are critical to ending the pandemic. And in our reporting at KUNC, we haven't tracked any real significant opposition to it until now. Right. Actually, the story has been the opposite. We've seen the photo ops, doctors, nurses, members of the National Guard, all getting vaccines. And as KUNC's Matt Bloom has reported, there's been a clamoring of sorts among everyone who wants to get the vaccine. At the moment, people 70 and older are allowed to be vaccinated, along with the residents of nursing and assisted living centers and the workers who care for them. So what are we talking about? How many of these workers are skipping a vaccination? Well, we don't have specific numbers, but anecdotally, the percentage is high. That's according to the National Guard, which is helping with vaccination efforts, and the Colorado Healthcare Association, which represents nursing and assisted living facilities around the state. Doug Farmer is the association's president most residents, he says, are getting vaccinated at the pop-up clinics that come to the facilities, but the story is different when it comes to the workers. On the staff side, first clinics I was hearing between 50 and 60 percent generally were, were taking the vaccine. And then there was this reserve of folks that were saying, look, I'm not opposed to a vaccine, but this one, you know, it was so fast, it was politicized. I'm not sure. So according to Farmer, half or more workers decided not to be vaccinated in clinics that began in the week ahead of the new year. I asked officials with the state of Colorado's public health department if they had exact numbers on workers who don't want to be vaccinated, but they didn't. So I turned to my sources, including some administrators at nursing homes. They basically said the same thing as Farmer. The best case I heard was a nursing home where 25 percent of workers decided not to be vaccinated. This has to have implications for the elderly and frail people who live at nursing homes and, and these assisted living centers. According to the latest state data, the pandemic is still raging at long-term care facilities, which have taken the hardest hit throughout the pandemic. Roughly 
40% of the state's deaths due to COVID-19 have happened at these facilities. As we speak, there are active outbreaks at 258 nursing, combined care, and assisted living facilities, according to state data that I've looked at. In those facilities, officials have tracked 9,818 cases among residents and workers, and 651 deaths. Three of those were workers. As you noted, um, Doug Farmer with the Colorado Healthcare Association said politics could be a reason workers are refusing to get vaccinated. What more can you say about that? Of course, every worker has their own reasons for getting vaccinated or not. But in my conversation with Farmer and others, there is some anti-vaccine sentiment. And also, some workers are simply afraid of it. It's important not to forget that COVID-19 vaccines are being distributed under an emergency use authorization from the federal government. Some workers fear the vaccine has been rushed out and they worry about its potential side effects. Here's Farmer again. I am not hearing stories of, of bad side effects. You know, people do have reactions to to vaccines, and that's kind of their body doing what it's supposed to do, right? But stories of side effects are circulating on social media. But we've heard over and over from health officials that COVID-19 vaccines are essentially safe. And to that point, I reached out to the Federal Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, which is tracking adverse outcomes from the COVID-19 vaccines that are in use. The center has an immunization safety office, and they told me in a statement that the vaccines are safe and effective and that many people experience no side effects. But I didn't just take their word for it. I dived into their data that tracks adverse reactions. What did you find? Well, I found that the CDC is being transparent about the risks of the vaccine, which are tiny. As of Friday, the most recent data available, there have been 7,804 possible adverse reactions reported to the CDC. The CDC has to further investigate them to see if they can be linked to the COVID-19 vaccines. And it's important to put this in context. This is what they're seeing after more than 16 million vaccinations have been given around the country. Here in Colorado, there are 206 possible adverse reactions that they've tracked, including one death. That death was a patient suffering from a range of health issues who had also refused dialysis. As I said, cases like these get further investigated, the CDC told me, to see whether the vaccine is to blame. As we mentioned, more than 470,000 vaccines have been administered so far in Colorado. What about the other 200 or so cases here? Well, some seemed clearly to be reactions to the vaccine. I, I did a keyword analysis of the top complaints. They were redness or soreness at the injection site, along with aches, fever, dizziness, headache, and nausea. That's exactly what the CDC tells me is a typical reaction for those who have a reaction to the vaccine. The CDC also said these reactions don't last long and are signs that the body is building a protection against the virus. So we come then full circle back to the issue that the risks of getting COVID-19 are higher 
than the vaccine, as health officials have said. Yeah, and that's why many groups are advocating that people get vaccinated. For instance, AARP Colorado, which represents older residents. Here's that group's state director, Bob Murphy. Our official position is that uh, we have, from the beginning, urged uh, you know vaccine makers to produce a safe product and produce as much of it as as possible. So how are officials addressing the concerns of these long-term care workers who are refusing to be vaccinated? For that, I turn back to Doug Farmer with the Colorado Healthcare Association. He says that there is a seeing is believing factor for these workers. When they see their peers get vaccinated with no side effects, they're more open to being vaccinated themselves. People are seeing that. And then I'm hearing again, anecdotally, some of our buildings went from 50 percent uptake to 75, 65, 70, 75 in that neighborhood. So that's not that's not an insignificant uptick. Um, and we're hopeful that, you know, moving along, we can convince more and more people that that it's the smart thing to do. Just to push back on that, why not just tell these workers that if they refuse to get vaccinated, they're fired? I mean, after all, we know that workers can spread the virus to the frail residents in these facilities. Yes, and as I've reported for months now, nursing workers can have the virus and experience no symptoms, meaning that even pre-shift screenings like temperature checks won't catch them. Moreover, many facilities in Colorado have had chronic shortages of personal protective equipment like masks. So to your question, healthcare providers may require that their employees get certain vaccinations. That's according to Leading Age, a group that acts as a voice for senior living providers. Yet because COVID-19 vaccines are authorized for emergency use, it doesn't appear that employers can require employees to take these vaccines. So there is some gray area here, and uh, Leading Age is monitoring the situation to see what actually plays out at long-term care facilities. What's being done then to get more of these workers convinced to get a vaccination now? I asked the state of Colorado's Department of Public Health and Environment that question, and in a statement, the department said it is, quote, coordinating with various partners active in the long-term care space to provide guidance and educational resources in plain language to address any vaccine hesitancy in this particular population. You know, I also asked the nursing home administrator what they're doing. Speaking of plain language, (laughs) their approach was a bit more blunt. They are telling their workers that if they don't get vaccinated, they are endangering the residents that they care for if they pass on the virus and that can kill them. Michael Dayuana is KUNC's investigative reporter. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. You can find Michael's story about this and others about vaccination efforts at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. First responders generally struggle with a higher rate of mental health issues, like suicide and post-traumatic stress disorder, compared to the general public. This winter, firefighters in northern Colorado are facing dual challenges, the aftermath of a long, difficult wildfire season and an ongoing pandemic. KUNC's Lee Patterson has more. Megan Huddy is tall. 
She has a huge smile, and she loves the adrenaline rush that comes with being a volunteer firefighter for the Estes Valley Fire Protection District. We have all of our equipment here. This is my locker. Huddy is going through her gear, red helmet, black boots, gloves, pants, and a jacket made of thick, rough material. So here's just the jacket alone. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Very heavy. This is what she wore back in October, as the East Troublesome wildfire had jumped the Continental Divide and raged towards the town. We got paged out probably about two in the morning. So we all came here, got changed into our wildland gear. She remembers sitting in a fire truck in a parking lot that night next to the YMCA, waiting for instructions. Power for part of the town had been shut off. Inside the truck, it was quiet and dark. Outside, the wind was howling. I remember one moment you're feeling anxious and empowered and excited and the next moment you feel like you want to throw up uh, not knowing once we deployed in what we were going to see is my town going to get taken over by the flames am i going to lose my house am i going to get to see my kids again it's pretty intense for Huddy, what followed was a very long day of checking for spot fires and assessing structures. The town had already been evacuated. What came later was insomnia, agitation, and distraction, all of which are normal struggles for first responders under normal circumstances. A large body of research suggests first responders struggle with higher than average rates of substance abuse, thoughts of self-harm, anxiety, and depression. Mental health in the fire service has always been a challenge. Firefighters see death, serious injury, and property destruction routinely. Still, Chief David Wolf says last year was different. Normally, those things come in waves, and it doesn't typically impact the entire organization all at once. Uh, with 2020, everybody was feeling the stress of the pandemic. In-person training, canceled. Group dinners, canceled. So already, all, all throughout the summer, people were starting to feel more and more disconnected from each other, which is one of the main reasons that people stick with things like the fire service is that community aspect. And we had been missing out on that for months. On top of that, volunteer firefighters have day jobs. Megan Huddy, for example, is a 911 dispatcher. Others are doctors, nurses, and small business owners dealing with pandemic stressors like everyone else, managing their kids' online school, worrying about money. And so I think part of what made some of the mental health challenges we were having so difficult it's not only the scale of the challenges, but the fact that everyone was experiencing them. They were completely ubiquitous in that every member is going through the same challenges at the same time. And then on top of that, also trying to respond to wildfires, trying to respond to other call volumes and, and keep that up while not knowing how long it's going to last. Finding ways to cope falls to a handful of people, including Brian Schaefer. Hello. He's a volunteer chaplain with the Estes Valley yeah. Fire Protection District and leads the department's peer support team. We're just there to empathize and to say, hey, I hear you, and wow, sorry that these things are going on. The team has only been in place for a year, but they've already had around 500 conversations and check-ins. Many times part of the healing process of traumatic events is just telling your story to someone and sharing how it made you feel. And so we just want to continue to you know, keep uh, everyone healthy and, uh, and ready for whatever comes next. Megan Huddy is one of the six firefighters on the peer support team. She says she's been doing more in-depth check-ins recently, with firefighters talking about layoffs and financial troubles related to the pandemic. She points out some of the department's pictures uh, hanging is, on the wall. Yeah, this is this year. We got our masks. Um, oh, all matching blue masks. Uh-huh. So we have 
captured this moment in time. This is a small, close-knit group, she says, so ongoing COVID restrictions have been difficult for them. And now you just have to stand back that six feet distance. How are you doing? And it's hard. You read their body language or you're their eyes and you know something's wrong and man, you just want to put your hand on their shoulder or hug them and you just can't do it. Things are starting to look up. Firefighters have begun to get vaccinated. The peer support team is bringing on a few new members and Megan Huddy is looking forward to learning how to drive the fire truck. The department is also looking ahead to the next fire season. Their first wildland training session is scheduled to be socially distanced but in person in March. Lee Patterson, KUNC. And we're going to bring in Lee now for more on mental health challenges among first responders as the pandemic drags on, not just firefighters, but also police and emergency medical technicians, EMTs. Lee, what do we know about mental health struggles among first responders, broadly speaking? Well, we know that mental health struggles and the general population have been elevated. We also know this is particularly true among essential workers. First responders are in that essential workers category. Now, many of the people who I talked to during this reporting, both first responders and clinicians, they talked about this group dealing with many layers of issues right now. They're dealing with common stressors, figuring out their kids' online school, financial concerns, you know, family issues, isolation. And then there's the fear of bringing COVID home from work. You know, they're overworked, they're exhausted from dealing with COVID on the job. If you can imagine a sheriff's deputy who works at a jail where there's a COVID outbreak among inmates and staff. And then on top of that, all the usual stuff first responders see in an emergency situation, death, injury, severe illness, people in crisis, all that stuff. This is a clinician named Ed Rupert. He's with first responder trauma counselors based in Fort Collins. They see things, they smell things, they taste things, they're involved in things that most people wouldn't even ever anticipate they'd see or be involved in. We know that first responders generally struggle with higher rates of things like anxiety, depression, PTSD, thoughts of self-harm and suicide. According to an estimate from the government, around 30 percent of first responders will develop a behavioral health condition at some point, and that's compared to around 20 percent in the general population. And how about law enforcement? I talked with Fort Collins Police Chief Jeff Swoboda. He said that actually the remote work has been really difficult and officers these days are feeling kind of disconnected from one another. During normal times, if an officer goes out on a difficult, traumatic call, they come back to the station afterwards, they bump into their coworkers in the hallway or at the lunch counter, and they, they talk through what happened. Swoboda said that these casual interactions are like so crucial for mental health, but right now they're just not happening. Officers just aren't able to casually bump into one another and talk things through. Ed Rupert with First Responder Trauma Counselors was in law enforcement himself for decades. He started off as a police cadet at age 17. This is something like I've never seen before. We've gone through difficult times, but not sustained difficult times like this, where there's um, where you have to be hyper vigilant for a year. That's tough for the public, but it's tougher for these first responders because they're still dealing with house fires, they're still dealing with medicals, and still dealing with their own family issues. Rupert says that his business, which is providing mental health services for first responders, is way, way up right now. What sort of counseling is available for first responders? Well, at the federal level, there are a variety of programs across multiple agencies, but these programs are piecemeal and there's no real overarching plan in place and very little coordination. 
At the local level, mental health services just vary a lot by department and location. At the Estes Valley Fire Protection District, for example, as you heard in the piece earlier, there's a peer support team that basically means, you know, firefighters checking in with other firefighters. They also have access to a licensed clinician. Families of firefighters do too, and it's free. The situation at the Fort Collins Police Department is similar. But many other departments, particularly in small towns, rural areas, they just don't have the budget for those types of services. I mean, when you consider that um, most of the firefighters in this country are volunteer and they don't have the funds to do that. So this is where I think from the um, from the state level and the, the federal level, they need to recognize that not addressing this problem on a national level is is really not giving the public the best efforts that they could give them for public service that they're paying for. Interesting. So is what he's saying there that caring for the mental health of first responders will actually help them better serve the public, be better at their jobs, essentially? Yep. Okay. Lee Patterson is KUNC's mental health reporter. Thanks, Lee. You're welcome. A new movie, The Dig, centers on a famous archaeological site in England just before the start of World War II. For KUNC film critic Howie Mofshevitz, who teaches film and television at CU Denver, the film should have dug a little deeper. Simon Stone's The Dig starts well enough. In 1939, an upper-class woman, Edith Pretty, Carrie Mulligan, owns an estate with a number of large mounds dotting the fields. Something might be buried in them, so she hires a man who calls himself an excavator named Basil Brown, Ray Fines, to investigate. He's got no formal education. He learned archaeology from his father, who knew what he was doing. Mr. Brown and Mrs. Pretty are a good match. Both think seriously about the meaning of the past. My interest in archaeology began like yours when I was scarcely old enough to hold a trowel. My childhood home was built on a Cistercian convent. I helped my father excavate the apse. That speaks, doesn't it? The past. Together they uncover maybe the greatest archaeological find in Britain. The site is called Sutton Hoo. The mound that Brown excavated held a 6th or 7th century ship burial with swords, a magnificent bejeweled helmet, and many other treasures. The discovery changed the understanding of British history in the early Middle Ages because the site was of Anglo-Saxon culture and not Viking as assumed. The exhibit in the British Museum is a full-out wow. Right off the bat, the dig has two good characters, two remarkable actors, and a great series of events. Yet the film fritters it all away. Halfway through, it's still unclear what the picture's about, and the second half clouds the matter more. These two people of different social classes and class-strangled Britain have a profound connection. But what might be a fascinating story about how shared interests break through the class barrier goes nowhere, as if the film loses its map. The picture opens a gnarly relationship between Mr. Brown and the pompous archaeologist from the British Museum. He's contemptuous towards Brown, which is apparently true, but the movie wanders off in that direction and never finds its way back. Another of the archaeologists, a stiff, colorless man, has a wife, also a trained archaeologist, with lots of life in her. She begins to fancy the nephew of Mrs. Pretty, and you wonder why the movie yet again loses its way. But the big regret is what the movie does not do with Mr. Brown and Mrs. Pretty. There's so much possibility in that pairing, and the fundamental images of excavating and uncovering the past are just ripe for the picking. 
Besides that richness, the Sutton Hoo ship burial was uncovered just as World War II was about to erupt, and that meant the tiny crew had to work very fast to get things out of the ground into a safe place, and the site itself had to be covered and protected from the bombings about to begin. But the dig remains bland. Even visually, it's listless. For a subject so promising in context, director Simon Stone shoots in a short focus, so the area looks fuzzy, the wondrous place where all of this material could play out. Even when the stunning helmet is uncovered, the picture barely shows it. The movie's shot from all sorts of odd angles. It strains to be artsy instead of showing the great wonders it has right there. What a waste. Yet in all this mess, Carrie Mulligan and Ray Fiennes are still magnificent. They're both masters of subtle, telling gestures and postures. Fiennes looks pared down to raw essentials, a modest, working-class guy of tremendous intelligence and barely hidden but deep feeling. Mulligan's Mrs. Pretty has beauty and strength beneath her plain exterior and an illness that saps her energy. You long for this relationship, which is not about romance or sex, to develop. And as you see the film slowly abandon these gems, just as it abandons the wonder of the archaeological treasures, you feel yourself grabbing for it, as if to say to the movie, don't leave them. But it does, and you're left feeling empty. For KUNC, I'm Howie Mopshevitz. That's our show for today. Over the weekend, UC Health is hosting a mass COVID-19 vaccination clinic in Denver for Coloradans who have already registered. We'll be back Monday with the latest on how that goes and what it could mean for the vaccine rollout in the state. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Adam Reyes. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. KUNC.